Welcome to My Life, Chassidah Supplied, episode 378. This program is dedicated to the merit of Baruch ben Yomim ben Menuch Elena, Miriam Baschaya Sarah Altez, and Yekusil ben Leah Rochel, and Rochel Basli ben Farkash. Dedicated by Pinchas Todes ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altez. Okay. So we have entered the month of Kislev, the third month of the year following Tishrei, called by Chesidim Chedush HaGeula, because the month when Yutas Kislev takes place, the Geula of the Alter Rebbe, and earlier the Geula of the Mitla Rebbe and Yud Kislev, and other special uh, Hasidic days, the Rebbe's wedding anniversary on the 14th of Kislev, and the uh, birthday and Yorzeit of the Mitla Rebbe on Tes Kislev next Shabbos. It's also Parshas by Yetzeh. So as such, we'll talk about these topics and, as always, applying them to our personal, emotional, psychological lives. Because Teireh is Melosh means directive, giving guidance, directives of how to live our life to the fullest, aligned with the Creator, the cosmic engineer that put us here for a particular purpose. So we shall begin with Tes Kislev. So Tes Kislev, the Rebbe, the Mitla Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe, Abdoiv Ber, the son of the Alta Rebbe, was both born in the year Tov Kuf Lamedalet and was nostalgic in the year, passed away in the year Tov Kuf Peiches. That corresponds to 1773 and 1827. So it's an interesting period in history. The world in general was going through the transitions as the beginnings of the United States of America and um, the different changes that were taking place in Europe. Russia was under the control of the czars. But as I've pointed out many times, when you study the historical background of events that were happening, it helps us appreciate what the Rabbeim contributed because they weren't just teaching Taylor and Chassidus, they were also countering the forces that were out there and both harnessing them as well as, as, well as counteracting them when necessary, to be able to fulfill the very purpose of Teir which is to transform this world into Adira B'Tachtenim. So when the Alta Rebbe opposed Napoleon and supported Alexander, the Tsar Alexander in Russia, this wasn't just uh, support, it was because he saw that the spiritual destiny of the Jewish people would be better served under the Tsars, even though there would be more, more poverty. It's interesting, the Mitla Rebbe actually wrote an even longer letter. The Alta Rebbe writes a letter to <coughs> Ramosha Meislis, who was a big chassid of the Alta Rebbe, about why he supported Alexander and why he was against Bonaparte, as he called him, Napoleon. The Mitla Rebbe has even a longer letter because it was that period. It was right, the, Rebbe, the Alta Rebbe was in the Stalic in 1812, Tov Kofayin Gimel, The Mitla Rebbe took over the Nicias, so it was still in the middle of the Franco Russo War which would come to an end around then. And uh, so they were all involved in this. Just to demonstrate that the teaching of Chassidus was not disconnected from events in the world. Sometimes it was more apparent, sometimes it was less apparent, but it was always there to be mamshech elokus in this world, means in this world, to make adire b'tachtenu. So the Mitla Rebbe, what's unique about the Mitla Rebbe, every Rebbe has his uniqueness, even though all the Rabbeim are one, as I've Shared a number of times from the Rebbe's Fabrenga Shabbos Pasha by Yetzeh. Actually, it was uh, Tess or Yud Kislev by Yetzeh, Tovshin Yud Aleph. 
The Rebbe said that he was asked, why does it say on the cover page of all the Svarim, of all the books of the Rabbeim, Shalshelos Ha'oyer? The Rebbe wrote Shalshelos, the chain of light. Why not Moyer, Shalshelos Ha'moyer? The Rabbeim are Moyer, they're a source of light, not just light. And the Rebbe said, Valin Moyer, Nishtak and Nishtalshelos. In the source, there is no Nishtalshelos, it's all one. All the Rabbeim are one essence. In Oyer, each one gives off a different Oyer, like we say, the Alter Rebbe is Chochmah, the Mitla Rebbe Bina, the Rabbeim said this, that's how we know it. Samach Tzadik Das, and so on. So in that context, the Mitla Rebbe, what was the few things that are unique, the Rebbe explains in different Sichas. So firstly, being Bina, you see that Echeves Hanor, which Bina is, expansive river. Alter Rebbe Chochmah, relatively speaking, was far shorter and more brief even though there is a difference between the Alter Rebbe before Peterburg, before he went to prison and came out, Yutas Kislev, and afterwards the Maimonim were far shorter earlier, and they became more elaborate later, but still, the Mitla Rebbe took it to a completely different level. One page of the Alter Rebbe's Maimon could be five or ten pages by the Mitla Rebbe. Both in the Hanochas that the Mitla Rebbe wrote of the, of the Alter Rebbe's Maimonim, he wrote them longer hand, longhand, more than you can see it when you compare it to the other Hanachas, the other ones that transcribe, like Ramaril, the Alter Rebbe's brother, or Rab Moshe, the Alter Rebbe's other son, another son of the Alter Rebbe, or the Tzamech Tzedek. Later you see my mom that Tzamech Tzedek wrote. Or Rapinchas Rezes. These were the five primary writers of the Alter Rebbe's Maimarim. So the Mitla Rebbe, even when writing the Alter Rebbe's Maimar, it was more elaborate. And then when he himself said or wrote that Maimar, that is a completely different level. So as I said, you can take a mimer from the Alter Rebbe and Torah Eir, three pages, four pages. By the Mitla Rebbe, it can be 30 pages, 40 pages sometimes, and even more. So first of all, you see the expansiveness. And uh, as is known, that the Mitla Rebbe wrote in such a fast pace that they, when he came to the bottom of a page, he kept on writing, and they had to move the, someone had to bring another page because he would continue writing on the table. I actually personally saw these writings in the Rebbe's library, when I, was, when I worked there, when I was working on Sefer Likutim of the Tzemach Tzedek, you literally can see the ends of pages, half lines, because part of it was over the page. They say the ink was still wet on the top of the page. The Tzemach Tzedek once said about his uncle and father-in-law, the Mitla Rebbe was his father-in-law and uncle, he said that if he would cut him, not blood would come out, but chassidus. So the Mitla Rebbe was known for that type of all immersion, all complete and expansion. You also see that many of his Svarim are actually referred to Bina. Is a thing called Shar. There's Chamishim Shari, Shari Bina. So you have Shara Muna, Shara Yichud, Shari Eira, Shara, Shara Tshuva, and, and so on. So you have many places where the word Shar is used, which is, uh, indicates on Bina. And finally, the Mitla Rebbe was also a publisher. Though the Alter Rebbe published Tanya, but most of the rest of the Alter Rebbe's writings were all written by others and published later, all his discourses, whether it's Vyuri Hazer by the Mitla Rebbe or the Siddur by the Mitla Rebbe, where he took the Maimorim of his father, the Alter Rebbe, and gathered them together, all the Maimorim that were said on sections of prayers in the Siddur, the prayer book, or Zoyar, Vyuri Hazer, and then, of course, his own Svarim, Imri Bina, which again, Bina, yeah, Peter Shamilis, besides the Bira Zed and the, and the Sidra I just mentioned, you have all the Sha'arim, as I Shari Eira, Shari Yichud, Shari Amuna, Shari Spilus, Kuntusai Spilus, I should say, and, and more that he published himself. 
So probably the Rebbe, of course, our Rebbe was a, pub, a published uh, publisher, essentially, of course, but the Mitle Rebbe, probably from all the Rabbeim, in his own lifetime, published the most, with names and introductions, published literally Svarim, in addition to all the discourses that he delivered. So if you think about it, as the Alter Rebbe was revealing the Chochmah, the Nekudah, the, the kernel and spark of Chassidus Chabad, when I say spark, it's quite extensive. Look at Lekudah it's not a small sefer. But as the Alter Rebbe was laying out the Sugis, the Mitle Rebbe, makes total sense in retrospect that he would take it and now expand it in the, in the broadest possible way. So when you see the Mitle Rebbe's Chassidus, you see that type of Chassidus Gisach, as they say, it just flowed. And it allowed Chassidim to really appreciate Chassidus in its fullest glory. Obviously, the Rabbeim afterwards each would do their role in continuing the expansion and the evolution, so to speak, of Chassidus and its teachings. But Mitla Rebbe, that was a major thing, the Yafutsu, Mayanasech is usually Chachma, Yafutsu is spreading it out. So the lesson to us is quite clear. The lesson is that our role and our job is to do exactly that to do whatever we can to spread the wellsprings of Chassidus. And we do that, not just in kamus, in quantity, but in quality. Spreading doesn't just mean physically reaching more people, but also, in addition to that, also means reaching them deeper within. And that's what the Mitla Rebbe teaches us. The kochen Chassidus, the, the, to, to integrate it, the internalization of it. And uh, Chassidus applied our program of course, in tribute to all the Rabbeim, specifically as we honor the Mitla Rebbe's birthday and Yartzeit, which is both on the same day. It says in the Gemara, Mamalet Tzadikim, Yem Liyem, the God of Tzadikim, that they bo- they're born and they pass away on the same day. You see by Moshe Rabbeinu. I, most Tzadikim, you don't see that, the Rebbe explains, because you don't see it by But somewhere, you see it literally, that they have their complete cycle. In other words, the purpose for which they were born, for which they came to this world, is fulfilled day to day, meaning the same day they were born is the same day that their neshama returns up, uh, on, uh, upward. So the Mitle Rebbe and much more can be said, but this is just a, an essence of kochen zechen chsidis, chavis chsidis, expansiveness in both in, in quantity and in quality. Just share one more story with the Mitle Rebbe. I remember the Rebbe was Pov Tishrei Tov The Rebbe was speaking that the Rebbe had different styles the Alter Rebbe is known that when he would daven, sometimes you could see the spilus in the very, you could see his excitement, you could see his very emotions, sweat, I mean, all kinds of things that you saw. He said, my modem, times he would roll on the floor. The Mitle Rebbe, on the other hand, when he davened, it was very, he didn't see much. It was much more inward. Not that he was less passionate. And the Rebbe then, when a few times that he used his hands, he said, so the Rebbeim had, it's called Ashtaraimu, the streimel, there were two types. There was one that the yarmulke on the streimel was flat, and the other was spitzik, was like pointed. You see it in the Samach picture of the Samach Tzedek, and Mitla Rebbe we don't have a picture of. So it says when the Rebbe, the Mitla Rebbe Davin, you saw, those that looked, saw the Rebbe did like this, that the spitz, which was the pointed top of the streimel, and the Rebbe made like this, you could see the para, the vapor of the perspiration spilling over. That's what the Rebbe did. He did like this. There's a video of it and pictures of it, which meant that the same the, the passion and the emotions were all there, but it was more internal. 
And uh, just an interesting note, which, uh, which indicates, I mean, the, the Rebbe, you also see that the davening you saw the Rebbe. If you look closely, you could see. But usually on the externally, you didn't see it as much as, let's say, by the Friedrich Rebbe or the Rebbe Rashab. What the reasons are, every Rebbe has his Aveda, and there's different approaches, just like we know by the Rebbeim, some stayed in one place and some traveled. Same too, and there are forms of Aveda. Regarding us, we need both. There's a thing called expressive, and there's also premius. The truth is, you need both. Alter Rebbe, just because he was expressive in that fashion, doesn't mean he didn't have the premius Chazrushalm. It was a combination of both. And sometimes you need complete silence. Aveda in Chashoi, like silent, like Yom Kippur or the Kehanim in the Beis Amidish, and sometimes it's expressive, like the Levim that sang, or like by Mount Teda, that were Kelus of Rock, a lot of sounds and lights and so on. So the truth is you need both, and each one has its mile that the other one, that complements the other. Okay. So before we go into, let me just begin with a comment. I've only recently discovered your weekly broadcast, a person writes, and I thoroughly enjoyed your explanation of the entire story of Yaakov and Esau of their birth, the blessings, etc., all according to Chassidus. This was last week's uh, program, 377. It was fascinating and brought the whole story alive and meaningful to my life, here and now. I want to hear more of the Pasha in this light, the story of creation, Noyach and the flood, the ten plagues. Where can I f- find more of this on a weekly basis? Thanks and blessings. So it's a good opportunity to let people know that just like this question, we receive similar questions. So first of all, I would refer you to chsidasupply.com. We have a dedicated website. We have all the previous episodes organized, and you can find them by topic by searching, if you want, Noyach and the Ten Plagues or the, the Flood, the Ten Plagues. Just type that in, and you should be able to find it there easily. Again, chsidasupply.com. We've made that dedicated site where you can also uh, submit your any question anonymously, completely confidential. We don't even we don't even know who write, wrote it, so you can write anything, and feel not not concerned that your identity will be exposed because no one can know who wrote. And we will address every topic. That's our pledge. That and no topic no topic is off limits or taboo. And you'll find also other resources, essays, and creative submissions written and submitted over the years for applying chassidus to contemporary challenges or issues. Plus resources on Ayin Beis and on Samach Vov and other Maimorim. Please enjoy it and take advantage of this excellent resource. In addition, since you're a new listener, I would suggest and encourage you to listen because I try to do every week. I take something from the Parsha and, and apply chassidus and, 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 and through the lens of chassidus applied and applying it to our lives. Okay, if you go to MeaningfulLife.com, which is our, our sister uh, website, there there's even more material, a little more universally presented, but similar ideas. And also there's a whole section on the Pasha where you can feel free to browse and find plenty of material on each week's chapter and different stories, the narratives, personalities, events in the Torah and the Bible. I also began recently, I should mention, on Sundays, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, I do a, uh, a live on several platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and other platforms, a podcast, a short 20-minute application of biblical personalities and events as they may be relevant to our lives. 
It's a little broader language where I, it's less prohibitive for those that may not know Hebrew, but that's yet another resource that where I cover these items. So you can see we're pretty much quite uh, out there on all the levels of the spectrum. And uh, that's what we do. That's our mission here at the Meaningful Life Center. And Chassidah supplied. I will mention, as I give you a little um, sneak preview, that we've never done this before, but at the end of this month, Hanukkah, we're going to be done, doing a crowdfunding campaign called The Gift of Meaning. And I already would like to announce it and encourage anyone who would like to support this campaign, which is essentially the funding we need to be able to continue these programs and expand them, especially with new different dimensions this year. We're focusing a lot on training the next generation of leaders, as well as addressing teenager, teenager and young adults and their needs and their challenges through Confidential Hotline and mentoring and different programs geared for them, plus much more in addition to everything we're doing already. So please stay tuned. And if you are interested in, in helping us, I'm learning this quickly on the job, by being a team leader, which means taking a group and making a financial goal that you can go toward chassidahsupply.com, it can go toward any project you like, or, or all our projects, any goal you like, and invite your friends this is something close to your heart. You really would love them to consider participating, making a goal. If you're interested in doing that, again, just go to chassidahsupply.com and write and in the forum tell, say, we'd love, I'd love to help any way I can. But leave us your email address or any other contact information because we need to be able to reach you for that. And I thank you in advance if everyone any, for your consideration and help and support because at the end of the day, this is a partnership. This is a free program. And uh, a lot of work goes into it, as well as our other programs, and we survive on your support. So though I don't like to mix fundraising into this the topic, but from time to time it's important to do so. And greater people than me have done so, like Moshe Rabbeinu, after he came down from Har Sinai, <laughs> I always note that he became a fundraiser. They must have told him, tell the Jewish people to give Kesav Zov and Nechesh. the same Moshe. It wasn't delegated, you know, but Saul was delegated to to be the architect, the builder of the Mishkan. But it came to raising money? No, this is so important. This is So I'm not comparing myself, but if Moshe could do it, I could do it. And that is, again, I thank you again for your participation. Okay, so now let us go to Parshas Vayetze, indeed. Lessons from Vayetze. So let's start with just a general lesson from the very first verse where you really see the continuing story told us as that beginning was about the two children, the twins, Yaakov and Esau, and I discussed last week what that means, its significance to our personal lives. So now let's talk about the, the, the Pasha Vayetze. And in Pasha Vayetze, the key thing to remember is the very word, Vayetze Yaakov Be'er Sheva Vayelecharona. So what's the meaning of that? The meaning of that is that, um, that Yaakov was told by his parents, Yitzchak and Rivka, to go find a shidduch, and also he was escaping from Esau. So where to go? To go to Chorim, which is their birthplace, of the, where they found their shidduchim, where the Ovis all went back to their roots, so to speak, in Chorim. So, Vayetzi Yaakov and Be'er Sheva says the Eir HaChaim, Chassidus cites it in a number of Maimorim, that the very verse is the story of each one of our lives. 
Yetzir Yaakov, Yaakov refers to every neshama. Yud Ekev, the Yud is the Yud of Yud Kevovke. The neshama of the Yud of Chachmed Atzilas that comes down into Ekev, into the, into the heel, into the lowest part of the world, Shama Beguf. And what does the neshama do when it comes down? It's Vayetze, the neshama Vayetze, it leaves Me Be'er Sheva. What's Be'er Sheva? The fountain of seven, the seven Midas of Atzilas. We all neshamas are rooted, and that's why the seven branches of the Meneda correspond to seven different types of souls. So they leave Be'er Sheva, and where do they go? Vayelach Charona. They go to Charona from the word Charein Afshal Mokim, God's wrath. Charona, with a hey, makes it even stronger. To a world of wrath, a world of hostile world to spirituality, a world of challenges, of difficulties. Rishayim Gevrimbe, the wicked dominate. Mole klippas v'sitra using the language of Tanya. It's filled with negative forces, duplicity, corruption, deception, as Yaakov is going to experience with Lovon. But that's the role of a neshama. The neshama comes from this highest place to go down in order, like the, like the, like the Pasuk continues, to create ufaratz the yama v'kedim v'tzafein v'negma. So when then Yaakov has a dream, and he's concerned where he's going. Hashem says, don't worry, I'll protect you. I will always protect you, but you'll also expand and you will grow. And you'll spread all over the world, which is exactly what happens. In this dark place is where Yaakov builds his family. And all his children are born here, as the story unfolds in this chapter. Except Binyamin, who would be born later in Eretz Yisrael. To teach us that though this world is challenging, but this challenge indeed brings out the best in us. So the very birth of the Jewish nation really is the story of this chapter. Even though it began with Avram and Yitzchok, but the 12 tribes that would become the scions and the, the branches of every part of the Jewish people, the different tribes, is in this week's passion. Yaakov. So it's the story of our own lives that there's nothing to be concerned about or be afraid. That when we go with God, and we pray to God, we connect to God, we even go to the darkest places and actually have the power to transform them. Which can go into more detail, the story with Yaakov dealing with the sheep of Lovon. So Chassidus and Kabbalah explain how all that was part of his elevating this world. Akudim, Nekudim, Vrudim, the three different types of sheep refer to the three different spiritual worlds. Basically, Yaakov was laying the groundwork for his children and for generations to come to transform and elevate, refine, elevate and transform this very material world. Charona should be even greater than Be'er Sheva. He will return, but then will return with laden, with family, with wealth, and everything that he achieved in this dark place. So that's briefly the story and how it relates to us. But I want to talk about certain specifics. People have written different questions. Why in the Pasha we learn about the children of, uh, the child of, of Rizchok and Rivka, Yaakov, and it's a continuation of last week's Pasha where we know that Sarah, Rivka, and Rochel Rachel will be later in this week's parsha. were barren. Why did Hashem make that the matriarch should be barren? Leah was the only one not. 
What does it show for a natural bracha in Jewish fertility? It also reminds me of how Mashiach's ancestry is full of challenges, difficulties, promiscuity, incest, story of Loit, Rus, Tamar. Well, the order should be Loit, the daughters of Loit, Tamar, and then Rus. Okay, well, it's two separate topics, but they have some commonality. So first of all, the Medr says that the reason that the patriarchs and matriarchs were barren until they had the child, like Avram and Sarah at an older age, Yitzchok. Last week's Pasha, we read about how both Yitzchok and Rivka davened for a child, for children, and the story with Rachel. So one basic thing in the Medr is because the Abish has pleasure in the prayers of Sadiqim. So essentially, they wouldn't pray with that same amount of passion and fervor if they were, everything was there. So by not having children, the Ebeshter enjoys the prayers that ultimately would be fulfilled and they would have children, as all of them ended up having. But as you understand, it's a little, uh, it seems a little, I don't want to use the word sadistic, but it seems a little cruel. Because God has pleasure in the prayer, that's why you can't find another way to do it. So clearly there's more to the story. And the answer really is, a child that comes to this world is a bracha. It's a gift. It's more than a gift. Ve'yetze Yaakov, like I said, the Yeridus HaNesham Beguf is the very purpose of existence. So every child born is, comes with some challenge, especially after Chetet Sadas. Pregnancy, difficulties, pain, birth, birth pangs, and so on. Because a great thing that comes to this world, every creation always has a challenge to enter this world. There will always be some resistance. But especially great Neshamas, like the Ovis and the Imois, because of their greatness, you can imagine the forces, the Umazah, the negative forces, stand and try to block it as much as possible. That's why they find it difficult. And perhaps that's what it means that God has pleasure. He doesn't have pleasure that they should suffer and therefore pray. The pleasure is because the pleasure of God is the pleasure that comes from the transformation, that even though there are difficulties and obstacles and all the forces in heaven that are made to, in order to resist because they know what kind of power and revela- revelation these children will have, the children of the, of the Ovis and the Imois. So that is the pleasure that comes that these, they break through with their prayers and stop these blocks, which we know, which is these obstacles. As we know, anything great about to happen, there's always going to be a challenge. That's the way God made it. Because there's a zel umazeh We have an afashalikis, a divine soul, we have an animal soul. And they fight and they're in battle with each other. So that is the, 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 one of the reasons, and there's more to be said on this as well, but it also teaches us that when you find an obstacle in your life, realize it's not meant to be an obstacle as an end in itself. In the language of Chassidus, the concealment and the Helen Behester and the obstacles and impediments is only in order to bring out an even greater revelation. But we have to see it through. And we have to see the big picture. And we have to reframe our lives in that context. If you just look at he ends up in Charan with Lovan, with a corrupt, conniving lowlife. But when you see the bigger story, God led me here. You see a family is born out of it. You see the greatness that comes out of it. What's the end of the story? Then you realize the purpose of it all. So that's a lesson to each one of us, no matter what our situation in that sense, you could also say, Mashiach's ancestry, why does it come from Bias Asuris is the expression used in Chassidus, which means inappropriate or uh, illicit relationships. 
you know, Lot with his daughters has children that would become the Moyav would become the the grand Rus would come from there, and Dovid Amelech comes from Rus, or the story with Tamar and Yehuda, also ancestry of Mashiach, because Mashiach is such a great gilui that you need it to come from the opposite. It's like Mineo be Abba Lishde be Narga. You cut down a tree with the very axe that's made from that very tree, with the wood of the tree that's the handle of the axe. That's why the greatest prophecy about Mashiach is where in the Sefer Avadja, the prophet Avadja says the Gemara, why in Avadja? Not Yeshaya, Yecheskel, Yirmiyo, there's so many great, great um, prophets because Avadja was a ger. He came from Moyav. And as a result, he wanted, the Gemara uses that expression, you want to transform something, you need to take from it itself to transform it. Similar to the idea of of certain antibiotics or homeopathy, using the illness itself to fight the illness, to counteract it. So that is all part of this uh, discussion. Yeah. The Pasha gives importance to Yaakov's dream of a ladder. What is the significance of dreams in general? Are dreams just the brainstorming random information in a nonsensical order? Or is there a spiritual significance to dreams? If someone dreams something, does it mean it will come true? So yes, here we have the first story of a dream. Well, not the first, they were dreamed before, but, and of course later will come Yosef's dreams. So the, all these events, the beginning of this parsha is Yaakov actually dreaming. So in general about dreams, I've discussed a number of times in this program, but briefly, a dream is really a mix, like a snowball, a, a mix of there's no dream without nonsense. And every dream has some type of prescience, some type of um, foresight, and even prophecy. It can be a revelation. The problem, not, the problem is we don't know which is which, which is why we don't go ahead and just try to interpret dreams. We generally ignore dreams, whether it's positive or negative. There are times that you look into a dream, especially if it's repeated. But generally speaking, that's not the way of Torah. We go a straight path. The Rebbe once told somebody who asked the Rebbe to interpret dreams, he said, first let's figure out how we run our lives when we're awake, and then we'll go to dreams. That's in general. And yet, that doesn't mean a dream doesn't have significance. You see here a Yaakov, and you don't see Dvarim Betel, and his dream is filled with the content, every detail. The latter represents prayer, as it says in Nebuchim and other places. Four rungs, the Malachim going up and down. The fact that first it says, that they go up and then they come down. I mean, every detail reflects something. And overall, it reflects our avoidant, that our work is like building a ladder between, uh, between heaven and earth. Because like it says, the ladder was standing on the ground, but the top of the ladder went into heaven. We have to have our feet firmly planted on the ground, but we have our heads have to be in heaven. Our aspirations, our dreams, talk about dreams. And we create malachim through our good deeds. So there are many, many lessons that we can learn from this dream. And here it did come as a dream. Now, there's also the element of a dream that sometimes the way Hashem, the way God, wants to express something that can be expressed in a conscious way, like through words, because Hashem also spoke to Yaakov and he also spoke to the other of us, it'll come in a dreamlike state which makes it more ethereal, more so-called spiritual. As this dream tells Yaakov, 
And of course, Yaakov, as soon as he realizes in his dream what, where he was, he jumps, he, wake, he awakes and looks, says, how could I have fallen asleep in such a place? Which we'll talk about in a moment. So that's the general significance and somewhat the connection to this case of Vayachlem uh, uh, Yaakov, the, the idea of the dream of bringing uh, reality from a higher state of consciousness. Because as I said, when you're awake and you experience something, it's more mitzumtzum, so to speak, more concealed, I would say, the word not concealed, but more manifest in the garments that relate to us. When it comes to a dream, you have, like a, you have a type of vision of something beyond us. And this was a beyond. There was a whole, the whole Vihini Hashem Nitzavah God stands above him and says to him, I will bless you. Don't be concerned. I will bless you and you will become a great nation. So this was all an experience that was a type of uh, ethereal, higher consciousness experience. Okay. If someone dreams something, does it mean it will come true? As I said before, generally we avoid looking at dreams, especially if it's negative. And we just move on because the dream goes, Gemara says in Brachas, according to the interpreter. So it means you can leave a dream alone and it remains in this more vacuous and undefined state, which is preferable instead of us having to interpret it and so on, which is also negated to uh, our peace of mind. Now we know there's a concept of a tainus cholam, a person has a bad dream, so they fast. So there are instances, generally speaking, I would refer you to Arava Mashpia, if you do indeed have a dream that you feel really bothering you and you can't get it out of your mind. But generally speaking, as much as possible, move on. We have plenty of work to do that is uh, in our conscious daily vachedika um, hours, our awake hours. Okay. According to Aloha, if someone's name is misspelled, it can invalidate a So how was Yaakov's marriage to lay valid if he planned to marry Rachel and Rachel's name was on the ksuba? Or in different words, how was it valid based on a deception? Well, first of all, let's start with this. Before Matan Teda, it was known not necessarily there was a ksuba. The halachas that we know about marriage and other halachas came after Matan Teda, which also addresses the issue of marrying two sisters altogether. That's not allowed today. So one of the answers, halachic answers, is given because it was, two, because it was before Matan Teda. These laws were not yet established. The Rebbe has sikhs on this, where he talks about it at length, the pshat, the halacha, and then this talks about why it had to come through sisters, in this case Rachel and Leah, and why Dafki this way. I mean, just because love and wanted to deceive him doesn't mean Yaakov had to go along. Clearly, there was something deeper going on that Yaakov understood and ultimately allowed himself to say, okay, now that I know it's, uh, it was Leah, now it's time to marry Rachel. And he didn't insist on divorcing Leah or ignoring her. He had many children with her. Most of the Shvatim came from Leah. As in, uh, we're talking about as one mother, who were the most children from Leah. So, bottom line is, because Rachel and Leah were two of the Imois, and they're counted as Imois, which also tells you, it wasn't Bidiyavid, Chaz Rishon, they are the four matriarchs, Asara, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. So you see that they're very planned and very intended. Why did it have to come through deception? This goes back to what we spoke about before. That Ramois is a negative Ramois, but when you transform it, you can transform the very negativity and the, and the deceptive and duplicitous world in which we live. But this has to be, tread, we have to tread carefully. It doesn't mean we have a right to go be duplicitous in order to say, hey, I'm going to elevate it into holiness. 
We're talking about only where the Tater sets it up and the Ebishter sets it up. And Yaakov was responding. It was Lovan that did it. So in Chassidus, it actually explains from Kabbalah that Lovan, there's the Lovan in Klippa, which the Lovan we read about, the deceiver, the liar, the conniver. But Lovan also comes from the word Loivan Elyon, Lovan from the color white. The Loivan Elyon, the supernal whiteness, the highest levels of Keser, that's higher than structure. So in Chassidus, this is common, that something that falls very low has a very high root. For example, Midbar, the wilderness, the desert. So it says, It's a place that's not for civilization. It's not a person who doesn't live there. Because it's a wilderness. There's no water. The harsh conditions. And yet the Alter Rebbe says, Why was the Matan in a Midbar Sinai? Because Midbar, could also mean Lamal It's higher than the structure of civilization. That the Odom Elyon of Atzilus is a structure, Sphiris. And Midbar is referring to Kesser, that's higher than structure, transcendent. So there's Midbar below Kedusha, and there's Midbar higher. Like we say, Shtuz the Kedusha and Shtuz the Lumaze. So the regular order is Avedapitam Vadas. You serve Hashem, you learn Tehri, you do mitzvahs in an orderly fashion. But sometimes you need Shtuz. Shtuz the Kedusha means to go super rational to counter the forces of the irrational. That's below Seichel. So the same thing with Lovam. So the level of deception can be as deception coming from pure, just a thief, a liar, a corrupt individual, like a duplicitous lover. But in its root, there's also the concept kesel, the color love on white, does not have distinctions. It's higher than structure. So you won't use the word duplicitous, God forbid, or, or, or uh, deceiving, deception. But it comes from a place that's higher than the distinction between Leah and Rachel. And then it manifests in these two channels called Leia and Rachel, Bina and Malchus, so the different ways Chassidus explains it. So that gives a little more insight into this. And again, if to be careful, we can't just go apply this whenever we like, because then basically you can go say, okay, I can do anything I want, because it's coming from Kesson. No. You have to have the right, you have to have earned your right to be able to be Mamshik from places like that, just like a Balchuva. So when we have Sadik Yashar Helech, Adam Yashar Helech, we are told this is what you're supposed to do, this is not what you're not supposed to do. So someone will say, one second, about Shuvah comes, and though he sinned and did what he was not supposed to do, he transgresses, then he does Shuvah, which draws from a place that's higher than the difference between mitzvahs and Avedas. So why can't I chile, I'll sin and I'll do Shuvah? No, it doesn't work that way. We have to follow what the Yibishter wants. If a person, by accident, or even deliberate, does something, so there is a back door. If he indeed reaches a level of tshuva meyira and then tshuva ma'ava, he can transform. Like it says by Purim, What it means, the cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. They're two opposites. They should never be similar. What does it mean he doesn't know the difference? So Chesidus explains it because he's going to a place that precedes the difference. Goyrul, that's higher than all of the structures, and bringing that back in structure. But there's, that has to be only when the Torah tells you to do, what, to do that, and only in the circumstances. You can't just go and decide, hey, no more boundaries, no more, no more definitions, no more uh, categories, no more structure. It's not how it works. It's only when the Torah says so, and only when it comes from Bittl. The Rebbe explains by shotness, for example. You can't mix linen and wool. But 
do you see that there, big day corner, there was shotness? The answer is because the Tater says so. And the Tater says so, it's like Tiferes, mixes Chesed and Gvura. But not when on our own we have no right to do so. Only with the Tater says so. We're not allowed to mix meat and, and milk, or other Chesed and Gvura, or shotness, or other forms of Tkalayim, and uh, whether it's in the animals or grafting in the world of plants, and so on. It's only with the bitl of Gedusha, and Tater says that you can do it. Why do most normal people say Yaakov Avinu, but some people say Yankiv? Normal people, I don't know, I like the word now. Yankiv. I don't see the letter N or Nun in the spelling of his name. Why say Yankiv? I think it's just a slang and doesn't have any real significance. It's like people speak Yiddish, say Yankiv, Yankiv, they're really saying Yaakov. Yaakov, 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 they said Yaakov. I've never seen any deeper reason. And, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Sometimes it's just a slang. It's just a way of a matter of expression. If somebody has seen something more than that, um, the Rebbe, the, the, I, the, all, the, the, all the talks the Rebbe delivered, he would say Yaakov Avinu. I don't remember him saying every Yankov. But um, I could say, like I said, matter of speech. So that's an easy answer. Was it disrespectful for Yaakov to sleep on the holy ground that would house the holy temple? He made, I'm not sure the second half is a little weird, but I'll read it. He made a lot of money in the cattle business while working for love, and why couldn't Yaakov afford to rent a hotel room instead of choose to sleep outdoors like a homeless individual? I don't want to use the words that was written here. So first of all, let's get something clear here. He made a lot of money in the cattle business later. This falling asleep is before he even met Lavan. So let's not mix the two. Secondly, it was not because Yaakov did not have a hotel room. <laughs> Yaakov was traveling, and he was, he was going on a mission to Charon from Be'er Sheva, and he needed a place to rest. And that was the custom that you rested, where you camped out, where you can camp out. There were no hotels. This was not the 21st century or the 20th century. I'm sure there were some places. Avram Avinu had a place where he had hospitality. But Yaakov was, on a, was going. It wasn't like all over. The place wasn't exactly civilized. Even the Temple Mount, was not, there was no temple there. It was just a mount. So was it disrespectful for Yaakov to fall asleep there? No, because he didn't know. And when he found out, as soon as he found out, he exactly became aware. Shat, and he recognized, yes, Shara Shamayim, this is the gate to heaven. But there's different Sfarim and Chassidus and, and uh, commentaries that speak about why did it have to happen there Clearly, it was a reason for him to fall asleep there because a tzaddik falls asleep in a place like that. That helps refine that place. So from Yaakov's point of view, he definitely, once he became aware, he realized it's not a place he wants to sleep. It's a place of awareness and cognizance. But his sleeping there at the end of the day was part of the refinement and part of the preparation of that ground, that sacred ground, that hallowed ground for building the Beis Amidus because that's where he had the dream and that's where Hashem promised him all the promises which would all come to bear through the years, and especially when the temple was built there. So that's the, the, the short answer for this. There's a nice, sikha, beautiful sikha from the Rebbe. I think it's by Yates, Yitav Shinun Beis, where he speaks at length about the whole process of Yaakov falling asleep and the difference between sleep and being awake. When sleep, everything is equal, meaning your body, your head, your body, your legs are all lying, are... are, are um, prostrating themselves so they're like lying equally and what it means to stand upright and also about the stones that fought about Yaakov where he should rest his head 
It's an interesting sikha. I would refer you to that sikha in Tavshinun Beis Vayetze. In Sefer HaSikha is Tavshinun Beis. And finally, who were Bila and Zilpa? Even though they birthed four of the twelve tribes, why are they not counted with our foremother four Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah? Were Bila and Zilpa Jewish? Were they maids? If someone's wife is having difficulty getting pregnant, can the husband marry the cleaning lady and produce children with her instead? Okay, so <laughs> um, let's start with this. First of all, they were the maidservants of Leah and Rachel, respectively. And because they all understood that they were building a new nation, whether they were totally conscious or not conscious, but they definitely had a sense of it. So Leah and Rachel, more than happily, gave their maids to uh, Yaakov. Remember, this is before Matan Teda, so all these laws that apply after Matan Teda were not there. And the nation of Israel, the, Jewish, of the nation of the Jewish people, was born through these. So the Shvatim come from these. Uh, and nowhere ever does it say, I mean, there were those that, that tried to um, insult certain people because they came from the Shvachis, from the maids, the maidservants. But remember, they were all Shvatim, Shifte Yudke. Every one of them is a Shevet, a Shevet of God. So therefore, you have to say that Bil and Zilpah were not simple people. They were essentially extensions, branches of Leah and Rachel. That's why they're not counted among the four mothers. But they are counted. For example, there's a famous expression, Barzel Kabbalah, the Arizal says, Barzel is Rosh Tevis, Bila, Rachel, Zilpa, Leah, in that order. So you see that they all have a certain particular role. So in the Imois, when you talk about the matriarchs, you count four, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. Rachel, Leah include Bila and Zilpa. When you break it down further, you count also Bila and Zilpa as the mothers, and they had particular contribution to the, the, to the Shvatim that they gave birth to and their personalities, because we know every Shevet had their unique personality. Were they Jewish? Well, was Yaakov Jewish? Was Leah and Rachel Jewish? Jew, real Jewish, Apiah didn't happen until Sinai. That's why they needed conversion. They were, the people chose to be Jewish, if you wish. Avram lived a life that would be the first Jew because he was Jewish in spirit. Halachically, Avram would be not counted Jewish after Matan Teirah. But before Matan Teirah, the closest thing to it was someone who chose to live a life of monotheism, believing in one God and following just as virtue, taught it to his children. In effect, you could say Esau was Jewish because he was born to Yitzchak and Rivka. Whether he behaved Jewishly is another story, but that's why the distinction before Ma'an is usually like children before Bar Mitzvah. It's all through Chinuch. Their connection is through their education. So Bila and Zilpa clearly grew up in these homes and lived with Yaakov, lived with their Yaakov's wives, with Leah and with Rachel. So they were part of that spirit, of the Jewish spirit that was then emerging and developing that would ultimately be formalized and consummated. During, by Sinai, by Matan Teda. Okay. No, you don't marry a cleaning lady because of children. Children, that doesn't work that way. The lessons we learn, there are things, Maisa Ovis, similar Bonham, things we learn from the Ovis and Imois, and things we don't learn. Regarding that, today, that's not the approach. Go to Rav, if a person, a husband and wife are having challenges, Rav, go to doctors and figure out how to deal with the fertility issue. God should bless anyone that has a challenge to have children easily, the least amount of aggravation, healthy children, and much nachas from them. Okay, so we covered Vayetze. I have a bunch of questions that are still going back to Teldis and, and, and Chayesara. Problem is, as you, te- as you go through this, there's so little time, 
And so many questions. I don't want to call it a problem. It's a good blessing, so let's call it that. But let's talk about, first of all, a timely issue. We have a new mayor in New York City. So the question is, should we support the new mayor, Eric Adams, even though he has made friendly overtures to Farrakhan, Yemach Shemay, and Al Sharpton, Yemach Shemay? Well, first of all, have a mispal b'shlemish al-malchus is a rule across the board in general that you pray for the peace and for the welfare of the, sta- the, the government in which you live because it affects each one of us, especially in a country like ours that's a free country. Mispal b'shlemish al-malchus was even in countries that were not so free, but especially in a country like this. Whether you agree with all his policies or not, listen, Human beings are human beings. Did everyone agree with de Blasio? And even when Giuliani was an excellent mayor by all standards, there's the human beings at the end of the day. You know, there's only one Eberster. We want to encourage, and the Rebbe would always be Makadev, political leaders and government leaders, because they're in a, sp- in a position to influence the community. First of all, the Jewish community benefits and can benefit, and you want to have that, those benefits. Secondly, even the larger community, as the Rebbe's famous story with Shirley Chisholm and the different, uh, the different assembly person, persons that would see the Rebbe, the Rebbe telling one to take care of the, his, his uh, district was Chinatown, take care of them because they're shy, they don't, they're not very demanding. Shirley Chisholm with food stamps, I mean, with all the different stories. Shleimish al-Malchus, L'Shevis so who best can do that are people who are in leadership position. So the fact that one may have an association and not, well, so what, what's our option? To go oppose it? He's now the elected mayor. So now we have to use it to the fullest. I don't know the details. I don't know if he did tshuva. I don't know if, he's, if he disavowed his connection to them. Fine, we have to keep it in mind and always call out a leader as well if we think about behaving or associating with the wrong people. But the most important is to use their connections, to use their influence. They're in a position of, of power, of control. And, and, and why not use it to the fullest for, as I said, the chinuch and the services of our own communities as well as for the general larger community. So that's the general answer. And this goes across the board to any leader, especially in a free country, especially in a city like New York, which is the, the place, the central headquarters of the Rebbe, the Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe. And in general, all the Jews that live here and it's in fact as being a capital of the world in so many different ways. Okay. I'll do a little follow-up. I'll do some Telda's follow-up in Chayasara. Maybe I could get through it. Okay. In the Pasha, we learned that when Yitzchak and Rivka were having trouble having a baby, they went to opposite corners of a room and prayed. The verse continues and says, Hashem listened to Yitzchak's prayer and they were successful. It says, this teaches us that because Yitzchak was holy and his parents were holy, his prayer had more strength than Rivka, who was holy, but her parents weren't. Rashi brings this from Medrash. How do we reconcile this with where it says in the place where Balchuva stands, even the highest tzaddik can't stand? Logically, I would think, because of Rivka's family background of con artists and idol worshippers, it was much harder for Rivka to attain her level of holiness, as opposed to Yitzchak who was spoon-fed by two holy parents. So shouldn't Rivka's prayer have had more strength? Okay, very good question. And Taka says, Vayetar, they both prayed, but it says the Abish answered, Loi, not Lahem. That means that, and that's where the, the Chazal take, 
because Yitzchak, he can't, in a day, to a tzaddik, ben tzaddik, and tzidkon is to someone who's a tzaddik, or tzidkon is ben bas rosha, which was the case with Rivka, Suel, and so on. <clears throat> so, I've not seen an answer given. I looked around, both in Nigla, Chassidus, and Mepharshim. Why would that be the case? And more importantly, why does the Teda have to tell us this? Why does the Teda have to hint to us? So-called Nabishvach from Rivka. So you have to say there's more going on here. And finally, I would say, a third question, a mother's prayer for a child, we know, with Chana, with Sarah, the Rosh Hashanah we say in the, in the Haftayda, a mother's nothing like a mother's crying. Rochel, Mavaka, Albanera. So suddenly Rivka's crying. Why? Because her father was a Russia. Was that her fault? So here's a thought which, I, I, again, I did not see it. If somebody does have an explanation or has a source, it would be great, but let me just share. Yitzchak and Rivka end up giving birth to the two nations. It says, it says clearly, when the Lum, 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 Yamots, the struggle between Yaakov and Esau, as I discussed last week, the two nations. This would be the two nations all the way till when Mashiach would come. So it wasn't a small matter, this birth of these two children. They weren't just two children, they were archetypes. Of Shalikis and of Shabamis, on a personal level, and a broader level, the two different forces. When one would rise, the other would fall. It was like the Zelu Umazah. One of the reasons it was so difficult, as we discussed earlier, because whenever think something great is going to happen, there's always obstacles. The prayers, both Yitzchak and Rivka, obviously broke through and achieved. When it says the Ebershta answered um, Yitzchak, think about it. Rivka was not happy. She had children. I mean, whether she knew or not that it was his prayer or her prayer, what difference does it make at the end of the day? The children were born. So her prayers were also answered. So what does it mean the Pasuk saying answered to him? So perhaps you can say the difference between Zohar and Nekeva, Chassidus explains, Ish Darke Lichbesh. Ish, the Zohar, Zohar of Vatsilus, it's in, or like Oyer, is to extend itself, to express itself. Nekeva, Malchus, Lesla Magamaklum. She doesn't have everything, anything on her own. Kfudda Basmelech Pnima. The glory of the princess is within. Malchus, like the moon, in contrast to the sun. Which one is bright and shining? Giluim, the sun. Which one is more atzmi? The moon, Malchus. In the highest levels, the oil galis luzulose, the oil itself that reveals to others is the more the mashpia energy, the oil mashpia. Oil makabel is oil galis laatzmi, more atzmi. So when it came to begoli, in a revealed way. Yitzchak's prayer was answered because Begoli, he was more, let's put it, more Yichus, if you wish. Tzadik ben Tzadik. Yitzchak ben Avram and Sarah. On the other hand, the Atzmi that would come into Yaakov and even Esav, that came from Rivka. So as far as a revealed response, no, the response was to Yitzchak. The end of the day was a response to Rivka too, but not in a Gilidika way. In the sense that it comes Begili through Yitzchak. The Atzmi part came through Rivka. That would be how I would explain it, to understand why, why indeed was the case that way. And the fact is, exactly as you write, because Rivka came from a more darker place. Kisheshana ben Achechim. Like a rose among thorns. 
So it has a certain power, but it's an atzmizdika power, more than a gilidika power. Okay. What right, what right did Esau have to be angry and threaten to harm Yaakov for taking the blessing? To taking the blessing because Esau sold the birthright to Yaakov. Yaakov bought it fair and square and they signed a legal contract. Nobody forced or coerced Esau to sell. Was Esau angry because he had thoughts of tshuva later on and realized the true importance of these blessings? So I answered this really indirectly last week. It really goes down to and the blessings, yes, was not was appropriate. You, you sell blessings for a bowl of lentils, soup. So it was angry. Bichlal, Esav was a warrior. Yaakov had to take the blessings, not because he was stealing them, because as I explained last week, he was storing them for both of them, harnessing Esav's power. On a revealed level, of course, Esav. Esav was angry both about the firstborn and then about the blessings. It wasn't a logical thing. Oh, since I gave him the firstborn, I, can't, I don't care about the blessings. Maybe when he saw the blessing, he realized I should never have given away the firstborn. But that's the role of the animal soul. That's the role of the warrior. He doesn't see the, the big picture. At the end of the day, Yaakov was actually doing him a favor. Instead of squandering these blessings and the birthright, it would travel through Yaakov, the twin, and then he, the neshama, would reveal it later in the goof and the nefesh abamis, which manifests in Esau. That's the answer to that. Okay. There's more, um, but I want to cover sort of follow-up. Maybe I'll do next week. Okay, we get moving later and later from these chapters. I'm not sure what to say. But I will talk about a more personal matter that I'd like to address here. My husband no longer finds me appealing. We are on shlichus. My husband has decided he no longer finds me appealing. Everything my friends say, I am friendly, kind, giving, etc. He says, I'm not. I'm not looking to end the marriage of over three decades, Kenan Hara. But I feel stuck. We tried speaking to a therapist, psychologist. It didn't help much. I know the Rebbe, I know the Rebbe says to be besimcha, but I'm having a hard time. No clue how to continue. We Baruch Hashem have children in Shaduchim, middle school and elementary. Any advice? Well, yes, whenever we have situations like this, it always comes down to the details. I mean, I have my thoughts when I hear this. I say, you know, when I hear usual suspect, smoking gun, when you hear someone says suddenly his wife is not appealing, what else is going on in his life? Maybe he's gotten distracted by something or by someone. But I can't say for sure because I don't know the, the facts. The first thing I would establish is, does your husband feel the need to do something about it? Or he just resigned? The goal would try to get him, you said, we try speaking to a therapist, psychologist. It didn't help much, most likely, because he wasn't really receptive. Or if he is really receptive, to find someone that can really be smart and really address it very directly. Because if he's not motivated and he's distracted, that's important to know. And then address that. If indeed he has something that he's going through, maybe personally, that not because someone else is in his life or something else happened, that too, he will need help in that direction. It's important that your husband has someone to, that he trusts that he can speak to because maybe he has something on his mind that we're not aware of, that you're not aware of, that he doesn't want to say. And again, I'm not blaming you, God forbid, 
but you definitely have to know what he thinks, and they need to know what his story is, so to speak. And did he actually say to you he doesn't find you appealing? Is that his words, or he's behaving in that fashion? Is it something specific? Is again, it could be because of other factors. I'm throwing out more questions than answers, obviously, because at the end of the day, I don't have a magic pill. I can't tell you do this, do that. So I think the first thing to establish is, is your husband ready to speak to someone? It sounds bad the way you describe it, so I mean, something has to be done. You can't just swallow it. And I agree, because this can get worse. You don't want to have a husband that's a stranger, but you're both like living as strangers in the house. So I think it's critical to try to do that. Now, it may not be easy for you to do it because you're the person that he will not respond to. Maybe he needs a friend of his. Maybe you can employ someone with confidence, you know how to do it in a subtle way, because he'll say, what, you know, why'd you go tell somebody else? But still, there may be friends, there may be friends that know you as couples. You have to find a smart way of trying to get him to speak to someone. These are the first things I would look to do. And I would not just leave it be. Obviously, you have to continue. You're doing your shlichas besimcha as much as you can. Your children need you. But I would look one of the ways somewhere to get to something. And it could be a very serious conversation between you and him where you say, you know, I, I, you make me, you know, I cry every night for us. We were once a beautiful couple. We must do something about it. Sometimes an appeal from your heart can work. So these are some thoughts and ideas. If you want to share more details, and I don't need names, and I don't mean that. Maybe I can suggest some more ideas, but that's what my approach would generally be. Another question similar, marriage problems. Hi, my marriage has always been a struggle. We've been to therapists who have given up on us. Now I'm at a point where I'm learning, leaning closer and closer to divorce because we're just not on the same page. It doesn't seem possible to have a relationship. Yet we have children. We have children, and I want to give it everything I can. My husband has some toxic habits and narcissistic traits. He doesn't agree with this, but ends up agreeing after I convince him that what he did was not okay. How do I navigate this? How do I have compassion for him, but also have compassion for myself? So here again, I would look to find a third party that you both trust, and whatever it takes, either suggesting it or let your husband find some third party or find someone that he can speak to, all problems that fester, it's like an infection. It needs fresh air. And fresh air here, I mean, without fresh air, the infection just grows and festers and can become a monster. Fresh air here means another perspective, another person. Now, conversations between the two of you are probably not going to go far because you already have all this water under the bridge. It's critical to bring in a third person. This is the answer the Rebbe gives everybody whenever they have a situation like this. Now, I, I'm assuming that there's the, all these problems because you're saying it's already holding by almost divorce, God forbid. But I would not leave any stone unturned because you have to really know the dynamics of what is going on on your husband's end, what's inside of him. Is it something that he can control? Is it something mental and more chemical? Is it because of some behavior he's doing? I mean, there's all kinds of factors that can be involved, but you must have that third party. I will say this simply because, I mean, I know what I'm saying is somewhat general. If indeed you feel that I can be of help by either the one person who's writing this or 
both of you, you and your husband and your spouse. So please reach out to me if you feel so inclined by just writing to us and giving us your phone number and saying the details so we will return the call. I will do that because, look, anything possible to save a marriage is worth doing. I wish I could say that both spouses are listening to this and then I would say the following. Look at Avram and Sarah. Look at Yitzchak and Rivka. Look at Yaakov, Leah, Rachel. These are people who built not just families but eternal lineage that we are their children today, thousands of years later. This is the power that a couple has. Now, I didn't, wouldn't say it just to one. You have to say it to both because it takes two to tango. You need two people who feel that way to understand that everything you do in life pales in comparison to what you as a couple will do and how it will affect your family and generations to come. It's generational. So that's the real heart and soul of what the passion that should be to do anything possible. There's nothing more important. That's why the Rambam says, the end of Hilchas Hanukkah, the end of this month, it will be Hanukkah. And that's why the Ebershah says, Yim Cheshmi, erase my name to preserve Shalom between husband and wife. To that extent, could have found other ways. But that's the attitude that we should be taking to all of these, to any, to marriage, to life, to family. And I say this to myself and to everyone. We sometimes get distracted by externals, by money, by good things even, by holding things, but there's nothing holier than a shalom bias, than a peaceful home, a harmonious home for ourselves, for our children, as I said, for generations. So everything possible must be done. So finally, we'll go to the Chassidus question. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Since we are taught that that the Gevuris will be greater and higher than the Chassidim, and the Rebbe said that we are now in Mashiach's times, and as he told a reporter long ago, Mashiach's times, should we now be focused on gvuris, i.e. discipline, justice, and so on, instead of chasadim? Well, first of all, let's explain what means Lassadim will be gvuris higher than chasadim. Gvur on its own can be translated in several ways. Discipline, justice, as you said, helam, concealment, simtsum. So when you are living in a, in a true world, you understand that it's not an end in itself. The Gvura, in some ways, expresses God's power even more than Chesed does. Because the silence of a Chacham is greater, takes more effort and energy than him speaking. But in Giluim, in Goli, it says, if Abraham would have created the world just to mid the Sadin, Rashi brings right in the beginning of Chumash, just with Gvura, the world cannot stand on justice alone. That's why Emes when you ask Emes, should you create the world? Emes says, no, it's a world filled with lies. You ask Chesed, you have to have Chesed. You have to have kindness, compassion. And Gvur is a piece of Chesed. Tzimtzum b'shvil ha'gili. But in a world where the truth will be revealed and will no longer have any yinikasach etzenim, because severity and justice could also have negative impact if misunderstood, then you'll see the quality of Gvur even greater than Chesed. You'll see the quality and the power, the etzem power, tzimtzum atzme yoyer, the tzimtzum itself will radiate, for example. Shamai, today the halacha is like hill, chesed. It'll be halacha keshamai. Not because chesed won't be important, but you'll see the, the so-called hidden power of gvura, tagbeira sachais, its intensity which is expressed in its restraint 
and its concealment. Now, regarding what we should be doing, no. When Melosid Lavi comes, Mashiach comes, we will be told where Gvuris will apply, whether the Levim will be the Kayhanim or the Eshes Chayla Teres Baila. But it's not up to us to suddenly decide, even Melosid Lavi, especially now. What does it mean then, how is it relevant to us that Gvuris will be higher? There's no question that chesed is everything that starts with chesed, kindness. You mean mekareves. So why is it relevant? It's relevant to know that when you're dealing with a gvura, don't see it as an end in itself and realize there's some deeper power that will be revealed very shortly. But not that we have to start becoming more gvuradik, more severe. Firstly, our severity can end up causing problems. It's to be gvuradik dusha of holiness. Secondly, it has to be when the Torah says so, not whenever we decide. So we will see and reveal, even in the darkest things, even in the most concealment of Gura, we will find the deepest kayak that's even higher than chesed. And we can begin looking now too. Whether it's in an unfortunate situation where it seems like Gura, to recognize there's a deeper good in it. Or just in general, understanding that restraint has a power that giving doesn't always reveal quite as much. And with that, we'll conclude my Life Exodus Applied, episode 378. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Please join us. As I said, chsidusapplied.com is the website where all the resources and all the archives are there. Everyone have a good chedush kislev, a good chedush agu'ula, going into Tess kislev next Shabbos, then Yud kislev next Sunday, and the other special days of this month. Call to and be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com slash donate.